my biggest regret of being in office for 12 years was um, was having basically gone along with things on promises that were then broken. And the pattern of broken promises at the Oregon State Highway Department is just too long to ignore. Welcome to the Bike Portland Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Maas. My guest this episode is David Bragdon, a graduate of Harvard and Reed College. David served on the Metro Council from 1998 to 2010, first as a district councilor and then as Metro's president. He moved to New York City in 2010 for a job as director of the Office of Long-Term Planning and Sustainability in Mayor Michael Bloomberg's administration. And for the past decade, he served as executive director of Transit Center, a nonprofit foundation that does research and supports transit initiatives nationwide. Last month, he announced he is moving on from Transit Center and plans to explore new projects. David swung by the shed during a recent visit to Portland, and I was really happy to be able to sit down and record this interview. We talk about a wide range of issues, including the uh, health of Portland's civic advocacy, what PBOT should look for in their new director, the way forward for ODOT's mega projects, uh, Bragdon's biggest regret while serving on Metro Council, and uh, hint, it does have to do with ODOT, uh, why he thinks TriMet should be governed by Metro, and much more. Here's our conversation. David Bragdon, thanks for being here. Hey, it is good to be here. Before we get started, I wonder if you can just share, just so folks get to know you a little better, um, just describe sort of your relationship to mobility. Like, you know, what impact has transportation had sort of on your life? Were you biking around neighborhoods as a kid or driven everywhere? You know, what what's sort of your story in, in relationship to transportation? Uh, you know, through your life. Yeah, I was born in New York City, so my family did not have a car till we moved to Portland. I was 12 when we moved to Portland, so that was the first time we actually had a car. So I grew up taking the bus and the subway everywhere. And by the time I was seven or eight, I was doing that by myself um, ar- around. So a high degree of independence kind of came with, with, with that. And that's been just part of my lifestyle my whole life and uh, became a both a personal interest and professional interest. I, I think there's some something very primitive about I just like big things that move. Uh, and I also love cities and I love urbanity and transportation is a key part of that. How, how about these days? How, how, do you, how are you getting around? So you, I assume you take the subway a lot, take the bus a lot, uh, do much biking at all? You know, I have to say that I don't bike very much. I will admit that. Just curious, just curious. <laughs> That's okay. But you've been, you know, the last time you and I saw each other, I think in person, you were in our apartment in Brooklyn, right. right? And we had some transportation experiences, you well, and I. It was fascinating to watch. This was uh, Hurricane Sandy whipped through. Right. Uh, there was this like mass mobilization of, uh, of transit because the subways were flooded. And That's we were, right. we were in yep. your apartment, whatever floor that was, looking down and seeing floor. these these 27th floor, these platoons of buses coming in. It was the most fascinating, like, triage. And how quickly that happened and how, you know, Jeanette Sadiq Khan and the MTA, how quickly they stepped on that and made it happen. I think the, the first day or two after the storm, it was just sort of very quiet and no no electricity in parts of the city. I think you were in Manhattan initially, right? And then you came we somehow got in touch and you came over to Brooklyn and stayed with us for a couple of days. We always we did have electricity, but the first couple of days 
that was quite out. We live right on Flatbush Avenue, big avenue leading to. And like you say, the subway tunnels were flooded under the river. And I think it was that third morning, we looked out the window and I said, wow, the street is empty. Like, what's going on? And then all of a sudden, you see police car coming down and this right. con- it was a convoy of like 20 buses escorted you know bracketed by police cars you thought you woke up in a dream or something yeah it was David, amazing right? it was like bogota overnight <laughs> overnight they and they slapped uh, restrictions on the bridge you could only use the bridge in a car if you had three people in the car they had marshaled these bus convoys from multiple points around brooklyn and queens and they were flying into manhattan within it was probably within 48 72 hours of of the storm while the subway tunnels were being pumped out which in some cases took you know weeks to pump out those so you know it shows that if you can really mobilize and you know society wants to get something done it is possible it's just unfortunate it took a natural disaster to make that happen yes true just can i ask sort of uh something that brings you to portland are you here for the uh, peabot director job interview perhaps oh god no no <laughs> no i don't have the patience I, well i wouldn't be hired i wouldn't be hired so no Why not? I, I, no I, I think i'm i'm uh you know i think i'm it, temperamentally it, and it's probably always the case but suppressed a little bit during the 30 or 40 years that i lived i temperamentally i'm a, a new yorker you know and it's like I, I kind of interested in making things happen so i, I and I, I may be a little too blunt about something so i i don't think i'd be a very strong candidate to be uh hired around here but okay i'll i mean that's a little bit of a insult to portland no, about no, pace no, of change no, i think no, I, I hear that is you know everybody's everybody's got their their role to play um i'm really i, I like doing what i do on the uh, sort of on the advocacy side well speaking of that you just i thought i read that you were moving on from transit center did that for 10 years so what what are you doing now? First, actually, can you just share with us what you did at Transit Center? For yeah, the last so back decade? at well, or uh, what it is as well. Tra- Transit Center, I'm the executive director of the Transit Center, which is a foundation which funds uh, and conducts research and advocacy to improve public transit across the United States. We're based in New York, but we're very active in fifteen twenty large cities in terms of grant making, in terms of studies and reports, and and really backing the community based groups that are fighting for better transit in, in their cities. And so for me, this been a really exciting run. I love the job. Uh, next month, it'll be 10 years. And I just got to a point in the, the last, I don't know, six months looking at a 10 year and saying, yeah, maybe that's the time. And it's like, when I started, it was just me and another person. So I'm kind of the founding executive director that it just felt like, oh, okay, this is a great it's a 10-year milestone. It's like accomplished and kind of time for me to do something else. I, I'm, I, I kind of had a, you know, sort of a startup mentality and that I like new things. I like doing new things. Mm. And uh, mm. so 10, 10 years seemed like it was time for me to be getting back to more kind of project-based type mm. work. So that's sort of what I'm looking around to do. That's a a job is going to be open for a national search executive director of transit center. So I think they'll be looking for somebody with kind of roots in community organizing advocacy and or transportation policy and government. Speaking of both those things, you've been an, an elected official. You've been in, in this advocacy role. You've had quite an interesting background 
career-wise. Um, I wonder, just if I can just ask you a question just about, you know, your thoughts on the relationship between advocacy and activism, sort of citizen advocacy, um, and government, government advocacy. Something I often hear from city hall offices and agency offices is, you know, uh, we can't do X, Y, Z thing because we need the community to support it, right? And then I'll often say, and I'll often hear other activists say, it'd be great to have an, uh, an elected leader or, or a staffer that would come out and push for something, right? So it's like both sides are wanting the other side to sort of put their neck out first. Can you share anything about just like how you see that dynamic and that balance of like civic advocacy versus advocacy coming from government? Well, I think the indispensable ingredient, as we've seen across the country and the, the groups that we support and the, the places that are being successful, the indispensable ingredient is residents who care and who organize and who do pressure the political system. That's generally the case. I think that was also the case in Portland in the 1970s. I think that's the origin of, of most good policies. I think there are, having been in elective office, I was, you know, I was surprised the constraints that one feels in office. There's this sense of like everything is certainly like on the Metro Council, you know, it takes three other votes to get anything done, you know, and, and then not only that's just on the Metro Council, but the intergovernmental dance of all this, of things being carried out by a city government or getting permission from the state or the federal government. And so there's a natural, I think, caution in in elective office, which is understandable. And, and, and that's actually part of the art of it, because there's nobody with unilateral power in, in government. Um, so it does take that time to negotiation. And if you're just simply out there and opinionated, you just, you know, can be a, a gadfly and be marginalized. So I, I think the indispensable ingredient, like I say, really is the advocacy, but it really takes responsive and courageous political leaders. And Michael Bloomberg is one. I think he was, you know, freed of some of the constraints that often apply to uh, elected officials and that he could self-fund campaigns and he <laughs> he didn't need the job. You know, and he, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's one elected official who I've, I've known who really a strong moral compass and really never looked at a poll about what to do. But that was partly a luxury that he had because of his, his wealth. There's other things I don't agree with him on, but in terms of like being willing, particularly on, on, on bike stuff, for example, you're, I, you're, I understand you're interested in bikes, right? Oh, yeah. It's so, a yeah. topic you'd mind talking about. We watched about. that really well, closely. Yeah. That was a really exciting <laughs> yeah. time when he came and had yeah. Jeanette Sadek Khan right. doing all kinds of things in the street. That was great. But that's the other, that's the other really, I think, really essential ingredient as well is staff yeah that, that the staff that really does get it and having the elected leaders who will empower their staff and and have their back to do the right thing um and you know and i think it's on the staff side i think is where portland retains its advantages mm. i mean there's you know there's a lot of falter all blah, 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 blah. leadership in portland and i think people are too hard on themselves and portland is is uh too hard on itself and in terms of its self-image these days i mean the last couple of years but its enduring strength is is really the staff of some of these agencies who are really really been putting out good work now for 20 30 years and continue to uh, and that that to me is an un, it's one of many underlying strengths that portland has 
that rarely gets credit. When you were talking about Michael uh, Bloomberg uh, having the luxury of his own finances to sort of do whatever he wants, I was laughing because I remember when those days were happening and there was all this, it seemed like all this dynamism and all these new projects going in, street public space projects, bike projects Jeanette Sadikam was doing. And when we would, we would mention those things to Portland leaders and Portland staff, the response I heard many times was like, hey, you know, New York City's got a tax base that we just can't compete with. I mean, they have tons of money. So hearing you talk about Bloomberg, it's funny because it wasn't just that they had a bigger budget, but the actual, you know, mayor of the city had a bigger budget personally, which is partly how that was able to happen. So, Well, he was willing to use his political capital as it were. I mean, there are small, as you know, as you know, I mean, there are small, modest towns that are doing some bold things and that comes from leadership right it's not necessarily the size of the budget but it's again it was Jeanette you know Jeanette was able to persuade Bloomberg in terms that he understood and he cared about you know there are things that clearly push his buttons the economy of the city uh, the the urban design is very interesting to him public health is a personal interest of his and Jeanette made him see in a persuasive factual way that that biking walking was a public health issue and that rang a bell with him and that it's an urban design issue that rang a bell with him he's also a big supporter of parks and so all that were things he could relate to and he then empowered her and then when she ran into the predictable and same old kind of naysayers he had her back and it said this is he she's my transportation commissioner and it was you know he backed her to the hilt she was you know they were also astute about leading with things that are pop safe routes for seniors mm-hmm. right well who votes who's most likely to turn out and vote it's seniors and being able to have the narrative of your grandmother being able to cross the street up in washington heights and right uh, you know, it became not just the data, but also the narrative. And so then they were able to accomplish, a, you know, a ton of stuff. I hear you saying that, and it reminds me of the importance of, of an ecosystem and getting these, thing, if these things done. You need the, the mayor, the, the, the agency staff, the strong uh, civic sector. Um, I wonder you know, what you think about each of those in Portland right now. I mean, let's just stop, talk about, can you say anything about the civic sector? I want to uh, remind folks uh, that uh, one of the, the coolest things that, that I appreciated the Transit Center published in the last few years was the, the 20, in 2015, the People's History of Transportation Innovation. I think you were like the lead author, one of the main authors of that. It was uh, like 80-page report, really excellent. I'll have it in the show notes for people to look at. I think everybody should read it. Um, still very relevant. The, one of the quotes, sort of the, one of the key takeaways was, without a civic sector that can direct public support, urban transportation innovation will not reach its potential. So I'm just curious, you know, if you can say anything about how you think sort of the health of Portland's civic sector in this moment. I mean, there's very few government agencies that just wake up in the morning and say, how do I change? It really, most of the time, does come from from outside um and that's also thanks for that reference to the 2015 report there's also 2019 one we did called winning transit winning transit also on our website and really talks about how groups organize to influence government and get transportation improvements and um so that that has 
that's really been fundamental in most of the places that, that we see. I know that you're very well, very aware of Portland's history, given that you used to live here and you're you're an elected official here, um, and especially the sort of what I think are in some ways sort of the heyday going back to the 70s, 80s, the the Tom McCall era, and when we sort of like planted those seeds of like the neighborhood activism that would sort of germinate and then build some of this amazing stuff that we're still known for. Uh, granted, that's 50 years ago, but do you think there's been a void in Portland civic sector from sort of the erosion of the neighborhood associations and the sort of introduction of the idea of NIMBYs or people like that, do you feel that sort of Portland's vaunted neighborhood associations have had their influence or potential influence eroded a little bit? And do you think there's a gap there now where they used to fill? I don't follow it here closely enough, but if their influence has been eroded, I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I think that 1970s style civic engagement based, predicated solely on on institutions like neighborhood associations probably has outlived its usefulness in that the most places, and I, again, I don't know the, all the specifics here, but it's certainly true in New York City, it's true in most of California, that these semi-quasi-official sort of neighborhood associations or whatever they happen to be called tend to be, you know, overrepresented of older residents, of homeowners, white people, they're they're basically the people who have time to spend on this, and then, so there's an inherent conservatism, not conservatism in the sense of you know right left conservative, but conservatism relative to change. So I think the 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 engagement has to be you know in in other forms now because yeah. so you know what what the neighborhood associations you know, become very good at blocking things, which in the case, you know, is blocking the Mount Hood Freeway from tearing out, you know, 1% of the houses in South, in Southeast Portland. You know, that's probably a good thing that they, you know, yeah. they mobilize to stop that. But if they can block that, they can also but, block but changing also the parking in front of their yeah, places blocking able, or adding you know, Not being able to have a duplex in yeah. that neighborhood. That's, uh, you know, that's just sort of selfishness. But yeah, so that part may be sort of broken and there needs to be, a, you know, some new new forms of engagement maybe in in, in replace of that uh that segment of uh, the feedback loop has arisen social media and the ability for citizen activists yeah. to have more power so right maybe. i mean I, th- I don't know the social media is any more representative than a neighborhood association it's just representative you know, mis- uh, <laughs> unrepresentative in a different way yeah i would say one you know one thing about transportation advocacy in in portland from what i do understand from three thousand miles away is that there is definitely a a fraying of the breadth of the coalition, particularly with regard to the business world, not necessarily playing a very constructive role here, which is very different from what we see elsewhere. Um, The employers in downtown Seattle, granted, these are some major companies. uh, Again, I don't necessarily agree with Amazon on everything in terms of like minimum wage or probably other things I might not agree with, but they understand the importance of transit for their downtown, their location, Microsoft, in the east, eastern part of that region. The, the, the businesses in Seattle are like 100% all in on transit, and they are leaders in ballot measures. They're leaders in the campaign. They, they, they work really hard. Chicago, um, you know, Commercial Club of Chicago, what's their number one issue? It's like get the CTA working again, you know, improve transit partnership of for, for New York, which is like the major companies. They get that like Midtown Manhattan or Lower Manhattan does not work without transit. And so they are like 
in the forefront of the fight for trans Bay Area Council. I mean, every major city uh, businesses are very transit supportive. My understanding is that's no longer really the case here in Portland. That, the, that there's just uh, sort of a a wall on, on these issues. So that's that which was not the case here in hmm. obviously in the 1970s or you know when sort of the foundations were were laid for what you have here today yeah interesting i i've heard a bit about that too there was um you know of course uh, you might recall uh metro tried to put together a, a transportation funding package a couple years ago that failed at the ballot uh, and I, I was able to read uh, the people that put that together had created sort of an autopsy about sort of like what went wrong. And that is one of the things that they'd mentioned was that sort of the fractious nature of the coalition that people around the, the, the measure thought would be there didn't turn out to be there. Uh, and that was one of the things they listed is that some of the businesses weren't just AWOL, but were act actively fighting right. uh, the measure. So Yeah. Um, so, yeah, to, to go back to the... Uh, the Transportation Innovation Report. Um, another thing you said in there, which is very relevant to what's happening now, was that um, it, the quote from the report was, a bold mayor and transportation agency head who have both the courage to create the vision for a different kind of city and the management skills to compel their staff to do things differently are essential for the successful implementation of any change. So right now, PBOT uh, is hiring a new director. Uh, and I just wonder, you know, actually, some of the people involved in that hire might be listening to this, and I just wonder if you would have any uh, advice or insights for them in terms of what kind of person they should look for for that position. Well, I think you know what we were writing about in that report too are you know sort of periods of reform and redirection where you're trying to really take an organization or an agency in a, in, a, in a new direction, and that that sort of impulse from the top is very important. I think I think Portland's at a different stage um, in the sense that that the the staff in many of the transportation the, the well Peabody in particular or, or TriMet that there are professionals in those agencies who have it on the right trajectory and who want to do the right thing and no actually have the technical skills to to do that and that would not have been the case 20 30 years ago and the same is true at New York City DOT today. I mean, that there are people that Jeanette hired and, you know, now, you know, multiple generations almost of them, people who've kind of come up through the systems that she helped to instill. And despite the fact that succeeding, the, the current commissioner is, um, I can say this diplomatically, is not as uh, strong a commissioner as I or you might like in terms of these issues, but that matters less at this point in history because the agency is staffed with people who do get it. And that's my sense with, with PBOT is that it is staffed with people who do get it and they know the right things to do and, and have the skills to, to do it. I do think a director and a commissioner, and then ideally when you, you, know, when you change the system, I think that adds uh, in, in 20, whatever, 2024 or whatever, and you're going to have a city manager instead of the kind of fractured different bureaus. That adds a whole new level of um, potential, you know, in terms of professionalization and support and institutionalization of, of sort of across the bureaus. But uh, anyway, I mean, you, I think you, you'd want to have a director um, that, you know, will back that staff, make sure they have the tools they need technically, financially. And to also to, to uh, stand up to naysayers and, you know, 
let them let the uh, let them continue to reform the streets and and put the put safety first and the other things that are on what is really a good agenda, but just not moving fast enough. I think that's what a what strong leadership can do can expedite a good good agenda. Yes, I I hear you about not moving fast enough and the need to sort of do more uh, more quickly. I think if right, I think that's yes. I think that is that's that can be a characteristic around here. Yeah, and I think if you talk to if you talk to staff people or people at City Hall, they might talk about, uh, hey, we have no money, um, and uh, you know, I'm of two minds. I th- I think I can understand that. Um, I mean, it, there's there's a factual thing where if you look at the budget numbers and they're not great, the director of office office of management and finance at a recent uh, P- uh, city council work session on asset management looked in the face of the city commissioner Mingus Maps, who's in charge of PBOT, and said, basically, I have some bad news. PBOT's going out of business, you know, because Commissioner Maps is new to the job, and so he's sort of like leveling with them on how bad things are at PBOT. This is director of OMF, Office of Management and Finance, saying that he's looked at the numbers and he thinks PBOT's going out of business. Given how you understand things are going in Portland and sort of the dynamic there, how they could get out of that hole revenue-wise? Well, I've got kind of a rhetorical i mean the the answer to that in the sense of i and i this i felt this way when i was at, at metro council too that that the the complaint of oh woe is us we don't have it well there's never enough you know i just i'm just tired of you know i think people want to hear what are you doing with what you have right and i think the transportation industrial complex is really overly invested in this whole like woe is us we don't have enough money we don't have enough money and i don't think that for us necessarily is true for one thing in all cases and it's not very persuasive to you know ask the voters for more i think you've got to try to build on success and say we're doing well with what we have now this is i think where governance comes in that and and the sort of parochial nature of these different agencies and their different pockets of of money is that in fact there is a lot of money in the transportation system it's just in the wrong hands being spent on the wrong things so there's a bit of a cognitive dissonance in my head when i hear at one level of government you know people saying we don't have enough money to do these good things that people actually want to have done while in the very same city very same geography you have another level of government in the state of oregon that's willing to blow billions of dollars on things that are bad, that are demonstrably bad. They are widening urban highways, which will invariably induce more traffic and dirty the air and make socioeconomic equity worse. And so you have to take a look at what's being spent overall in terms of what people are paying in terms of their gas taxes or the other forms of revenue that go into transportation. And you really have to overhaul the governance so that the money can go to things that really do benefit people. And the structure now, it prevents that. Hence, you have a city government claiming they're in poverty. And in relative terms, they actually are compared to other levels of government, even though I think claiming poverty is not a very effective thing to do for a government that wants to attract more funding. But anyway, that, that aside... You have to look at it more systemically. So to answer that question around sort of like what advice you might have for finding a new leader of PBOT, if I hear you right, you, the answer to that would sort of be somebody who can change the narrative from 
scarcity of funding to saying we need to innovate and do different things with the money so it can go further? Is that kind of what you're saying? Well, and what are the outcomes? What are the societal outcomes? You know, how's, how's you know, your life going to be better as, as a result of more or different different spending? So it's a value proposition rather than a plea of, of poverty. It's more like here, here's what we can do. Yeah, I think, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is this, we're sort of stuck in this thing of the government saying we don't have money to do the stuff y'all want to do, which they, they'll say that a lot to, I guess everyone, but usually the activists that are talking to them are saying, let's reform, let's do things differently. Let's mm -hmm. not service so many car trips all the time, which is really expensive. And the government's saying we don't have money for that. So we're stuck in this place between the politics not being right to make that shift to not keep putting good money after bad, right? So I just wonder if you have any any advice. I feel like this is like a, a therapy session. Do you have any advice for a city that's like, you know, they? I agree with you that the staff down, down there uh, are great. They know they have the plans and the skill to do, to reform the streets and to make them, you know, work differently. The wrinkle is the politics of just sort of getting us over that hurdle, right? To be able to stand up and say, hey, we're running out of money because our system caters to driving too much, I think. Maybe, maybe you don't agree with that. I feel like that's a fact, not an yeah, opinion. Yeah. And so in order for us to get out of this hole financially, uh, if they say we're just going to charge you more to drive, that's going to be very politically tough. Because that's just punitive. That's not talking about benefits. That so, sounds punitive. Yeah, so uh, I'm saying like, how do we get to the point where they can not just say that, but also say sort of the straight dope of saying, if we keep supporting the most expensive behavior, this is not going to go away. It's only going to get worse. So help us support something that's not driving. Help us support other things, and we'll get out of this kind of together. Is that is that even feasible? I, like I, I feel yeah. like we can't. We got to get over this this sticking point here. Yeah, I would say that you know <laughs> maybe a way to put it is you know that what we've been doing in this country for sixty or seventy years has not been working, and just doubling down on you know what we've been doing and continuing to widen the roads is not going to do it. I think the, the additional leap is to get beyond where most actually even progressive Democrats are, which is they're still in the mindset of, well, it's all of the above, you know, mm. and we can do all of these things and it's going to create all kinds of construction jobs. And I think that is actually the bigger challenge um, in, in the sense that really reorienting the, the priorities is, is key. Yes, that's, that's, and, you know, this is right. You know, so you have, you know, Peter DeFazio, uh, uh, to his great credit, really was reform-minded in the legislation that he proposed in the last reauthorization. Last was it last year? Now I guess it's year before. Um, and but the Senate Democrats, including the two from Oregon, including the two from New York, um, you know, it's very much a status quo. And, and it doesn't matter how liberal Bernie Sanders is or Chuck Schumer, or how dependent Chuck Schumer's dependent. Uh, constituents are on transit or Jeff Merkley cares a lot about climate, but those senators really didn't support change. They, they more, they're still in the all of the above. Let's just throw more money at highways. And here's some for transit too. Yeah. And, and related to that, you mentioned where, where the money's currently going and this sort of like, I hear you saying all the above, like we can do a mega project as long as it's got a little bike path on the side, we're all good. I think you and I both agree that's, that's a red flag when we hear that and we get nervous. So uh, on, I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of shift here into talking a little bit about these mega projects. I can't not when I have you in the room. Um, the 
you know, ODOT, like you mentioned, is still working on two. Let's just take two really big ones. They've got they've got more, and I'm sure you love their office of re, of their office of urban mobility. Since you you've been so public for years, <laughs> saying that they have no business in urban transportation. George they, Orwell, George they, Orwell, right? That they, Off, they, office of urban obliteration. Yeah, so, is what it should be. So so just focus on just two of them, which I know you know well. That they call it now the interstate bridge replacement program, which to me is really gross that they call it program and not project. I feel like that's part of the spin, but regardless. It's all spin. When, when you were around, spin. it was called the Columbia River Crossing. Now it's called the, the IBR. Same and, old and, soup, same yeah. old soup, different bowl. And, and also the, the I-5 Rose Quarter project. So speaking of, you know, Democrats in power. At least you didn't use the word improvement. That's another no. of their favorites. Uh, yes. Uh, thank you for not doing, not falling for that one. No, I'm definitely not, not doing that. Um, you know, we, we do have some Democratic, some people we'd expect to be progressive, obviously around these projects in Portland. They've had varying degrees of success installing it or not. Um, but f for all intents and purposes, no one's really stood up against this thing in a big way that in an elected office that really matters. I mean, Metro's supported money for it. City of Portland supports the project and sort of a, a, a willing, I won't say a willing partner. They're a reluctant partner, but they certainly haven't shut it down. Um, one of the things that's emerging from it is this idea that you can right size. Uh, one one uh, House representative down in Salem in particular, Representative Confam, uh, who I, I think is doing some, some great work around some transportation issues. She's been pretty vocal about ODOT in general and these projects. But she is in the camp of saying, you know, we can right-size this. And I think even some advocacy groups are talking about right-size. Do you think that's possible? Do you think it's possible to sort of work in good faith with ODOT and right-size some of these mega projects, Or is it a better tact to just say, heck no, we're not, we're not going to move forward on these at all. Wow, there's a lot there. And I, from what I've heard of Representative Pham, I think she's the first legislature, legislator I've heard of in the time I was here or since who really gets this issue. So um, it's so important to have somebody in state government who perceives things the way, the way she does. Um, but that's the side comment. So your, your question, well, you know, it is not, it's not possible to work in good faith with Oregon State Highway Department because they don't work in good faith with you. So my biggest regret of being in office for 12 years was um, was having basically gone along with things on promises that were then broken. And the pattern of broken promises at the Oregon State Highway Department is just too long to ignore. I'm grinning because so you think, say. I'm sorry. I'm grinning because you say Oregon State Highway Department. Which well, that is, that is actually that is what it. Let's just call okay. it call it what it is. It, it, it's not an aspersion. I mean, it, or, the Oregon needs a good highway department. Every state should have a state highway department. State highways are an important thing, but let's not pretend they're the. You know, when when an organization, if you look at the headcount, the budget. I mean, this is always going to be that. And again, there's nothing wrong with it. Just have it be that. Mm. And then other things can be done by other people who are good at doing the other things. And then, then maybe the highway department could actually get good at doing what they should do, which is highways. So can, yes, can these, can, could these projects be right-sized? Absolutely. If there were creative people who would like, for example, understand induced demand. I mean, the, the idea that Mr. Strickler, the head of the highway department, doesn't believe in induced demand. I mean, the guy's living in 1956. I mean, the world is flat, too, if that's, if that's your attitude. Other 
states there is, and certainly in the engineering profession, uh, they do understand that <laughs> size matters. To co- quote a phrase, that that these can be right size, and the pricing is so important, which is another thing that ODOT is totally obscure and in denial, and has total lack of sophistication about is is the pricing. That's the real huge missed opportunity in all this because something and this is something they say you know something needs to be done the problem is they want to do something that's going to make things worse but it's not an acceptable situation today you have bridges that are built in an earthquake zone some of the pilings are wood you know it, it's it's outmoded has insufficient transit insufficient biking um the the it it it's bad for hayden island so Yes, something needs to be done in that corridor. Something good could be done in that corridor that adds transit, that adds more safer biking, that is good for Hayden Island, good for downtown Vancouver, and that introduces pricing. So, uh, yeah, I think that that definitely be done with the right leadership. The problem is that part of their propaganda machine, too, is to say that anybody who suggests that is a negative naysayer and then they just keep repeating their line well we have to do something and and i never I never disagreed of course we you need should do something but look it's them that's wasted what 15 20 years actually producing nothing uh, sort of on that note i'm going to assume that to focus on the i5 rose quarter in particular that i could see odot you know if they were in this room or if they were responding to this they would say we've already right sized it we're only doing auxiliary lanes do you think the public should trust that? I mean, they keep saying, you know, look, these are only just on-off ramps. These aren't really widening. Actually, they don't want to say the word widening. I mean, I think it's hard for some degree for the public to grasp that they might not be getting the truth from ODOT. And I find myself, when I use words like propaganda and other things, which I, I feel are accurate sometimes with the way they handle these things, people can dismiss me as just being sort of like extreme and being anti, too anti-car, anti-freeway. Um but, I mean, do you think it's, is that what's going on? Do you think people should question, you know, ODOT's assertion that they're not really doing a big expansion project in, in the Rose Quarter? Well, of course it's an expansion. Of course it's a widening of the highway. And they have their clever propaganda terms to obscure that. Uh, but, the, you know, the, the, the record is pretty clear. I want to get back to your, your question, though, about elected officials. I totally relate to where they are, and I totally understand. People run for office because they want to get things done, and if they're good at political office, they they want to collaborate, they want to negotiate, they want to reach some good outcome. So I don't think any any anybody in office in this region who is engaging constructively, trying to make things happen, is necessarily being duped or they're in cahoots with the pavers or they're anything like that. They're, they are actually acting in good faith. And I think that's how I was too. But I will now with benefit of hindsight say, well, I was duped. I was, I was lied to by ODOT, you know, and I regret having accepted that, but it's, it's an understandable impulse on the part of anybody in, in office that they want to kind of try to reach compromises, and that's, my, by and large, that's to their credit. The problem is that they're bargaining with the devil and being taken advantage of and not being told the full story. Yes, I hear you on that for sure. Okay, 
Um, shifting gears a little bit to transit, we've covered transit more and more just because it's such a huge component of what's going on. So it's something that our readers are super into knowing more about, of course. Um, I wonder if you can uh, share some thoughts about what you think the way forward is for transit after sort of the, the beatings it's taken from COVID and then especially here in Portland, but I don't think we're unique. Uh, also from people's perception that it's unsafe and that, you know, the amount of crime that's happening on public transit, like what's the way forward out of this moment? I think Portland has a lot of, there, there are a lot of good things about transit in Portland. And again, that it maybe goes unrecognized that maybe a little national perspective on this, that Portland has done some things steadily for a long time, very well. And, you know, fairly, some fairly specialized, but fundamental things. And one has been the frequency on, on the bus network and focusing on some high frequency cord, I mean, this robust kind of frequent network. And I was, you know, got here Saturday night, it was sun, Sunday morning, I was going, I stay out at uh, 33rd and or 34th and Morrison. So I was staying at 34th and Morrison, wanting to go to actually to church, a friend of mine's a pastor in North Portland. And Sunday morning, you know, nine o'clock in the morning, both those lines, nine fifteen and line four, both running like fifteen-minute headways, which is really phenomenal. I mean, you don't find that in a whole lot of other cities. That 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 focus on the weekend service, the evening service, and and TriMet has continually done that. And even while it gets you know national press or maybe more noticed for having built light rail, and again, kind of steady steady growth there is that focus on the fundamentals with the bus system is really to Portland's credit. And so I think there are lessons there in terms of recovering from, from, from the pandemic, all our research shows. And I think the experience through the pandemic of reorienting transits and, and transportation planning generally from the expectation that it's all about nine to five workers, which was a fallacy anyway, that was really overemphasized anyway. But thinking about transit more in, in terms of multiple purpose trips and the seven day a week, the eve, evening type service. Service workers coming in later, maybe people that are yeah, off and hours. trips from for mul multiple purposes. So mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, less focus on the conventional nine to five office workers is actually an overdue change in terms of transportation planning. So but in general, you're, you're a fan of TriMet, right? Like in general. In general, I think that that again, this is sort of like Peabot in the sense that that there is there are some things that are now in the DNA of the people who work there at the staff level that is very sound and that there are certain things that they know how to do and they have done well and you know continually holding up that frequency on the bus network would be one what TriMet has done with fare collection, with the use of data, use of data in planning. Mm -hmm. Again, I think a national leader, something people here may not know a lot about, but in terms of, you know, sort of public recognition, but is something that is nationally recognized by other professionals around the country. Um, project delivery is another one that TriMet generally has been way above average in delivering things on time, on budget. So I think at the working staff level, that that TriMet's pretty sound organization, and that is true regardless of leadership. You know, that is true. Kind of general managers come and go, but the sort of the professionalism of of the people working, I think they've they seem to be getting ahead of the driver shortage and understanding compensation of drivers. I think they're they may be ahead of 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 other agencies on that as well. 
what about accountability specifically? Um, issues like uh, uh, enforcement on 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 transit uh, or the cost of fares going up. Um, there's a sense among some activist groups in Portland that there's a lack of accountability on TriMet, and it's structurally true. There's not necessarily um, you know a publicly appointed board or anything like that. What do you make of the idea that gets floated every now and again that Metro should take over the regional trans transit system. So, you know, put Metro under, sorry, so put TriMet under Metro. What do you think of that idea? Well, I think it would, it would make it much more accountable. And I think that, that while, I, while I really laud TriMet at the professional, the staff level, I think the, the leadership level, it is problematic due to the lack of accountability. And the, you know, basic principle 101 of sort of good governance is that those who are most affected, those who pay the bills, are, are the, that's who should be in charge. So who pays for TriMet? Well, it's the people who live in this region who pay the payroll tax and who pay the fares. And while that is enabled by the state, it is not a statewide revenue source. It is a revenue source in this region, and it most affects this region. And those are the people who should be in charge through their locally and regional, regional, really regionally elected, you have a metro council that does transportation planning and land use planning. And so absolutely, TriMet should be under regional control. It has not, I mean, it made sense when Tom McCall was the governor, but he and the other, the other governor that we don't mention who was a mayor, um, you know, had a real agenda around transit. Barbara Roberts is actually to her credit, the last governor of this state who really knew or cared about transportation. And so the idea that the board should be appointed by a governor, you know, and then confirmed by state senators from Burns or Klamath Falls absolutely makes zero sense. And it's not fiscally responsible because, because those entities in Salem, they're not the ones actually pass it. all they do is enable the revenue but the revenue is regional so yes i think that is that is part of the governance problem of trimet and you see the same deal with in terms of general manager selection they're like the port of portland somewhat like odot that it's this old boys club and that they unlike seattle unlike la denver any most transit agencies when they're looking for a general manager They'll do a national search. They say, what's the talent that's out there? TriMet is the reverse, right? Mm. It's like Fred leaves. Fred, you know, points to Neil. Yeah. Set, says to the board, appoint Neil. Neil. Then Neil leaves. He points to Doug. Say, hey, board, appoint Doug. They rubber stamp that. Doug leaves and said, you know, here, appoint Sam. They don't do national search. Same thing, Port of Portland. It's sort of this good old boys club. Mm -hmm. And I think if you had local accountability you would find more emphasis on that type of responsive mm -hmm. leadership including you know kind of looking looking for talent which again that's what agencies around around the country do but that's not how it's done here to kind of finish the the conversation about transit i can't help but think that it's an absolutely imperative part of the mix that we have to get right in order to really make the kind of transformations that we need to make and i also can't not think that for so many people there there's this accurate perception misperception that it's that it's not safe 
can you share anything about how to move past some of those uh, perceptions that have been exacerbated after COVID for sure, with people being fearful of using transit and, and how big a deal that is in terms of like getting the kind of transit share we need? Well, I think it is a it is a real concern for people and, and that we do have to address it head on rather than deny that people have anxiety. That worries me sometimes that trans advocates want to uh, say, oh, well, hey, it's also dangerous to drive a car. Well, that's absolutely true, but facts in certain ways don't matter as much as perception, but you have to address that perception. And, and there's, there's no question that certain behaviors on some of the systems are, have become more common and really do need to be addressed. That people smoking on the subway, whether it's Philadelphia or New York or BART, people who, who are experiencing mental illness using the system. But it's important, I think, to not put all that on the transit system. And just as I, you know, I took, people ask me, friends in Portland say, oh, you know, what's wrong with Portland? It's like, well, first of all, remember Portland, like it or not, is part of the United States, right? And there's a lot of things happening in our society writ large that Portland is not immune to. And the same, I would say, about, about transit. And so the way people are behaving in grocery stores is different now than five years ago or three years ago. The way people are driving is more antisocial and dangerous, and that there are social bonds in our society that have really frayed and transit is not immune to that. We saw that during the pandemic too. They said like, well, why is it that COVID spread in Taiwan, the, the Taipei Metro is less than in certain cities in New York. It's because mask compliance is higher in Taiwan because the Taipei Metro operates in a society where people really care about each other. It's not like they change mm. their personalities when they come in the subway. Um, so, so, you know, so part of the issue is really that, you know, transit is experiencing that societal sort of decay, just like other aspects of our society are. Mm. The question is, what do you do about it that's within the bounds of a transit agency itself? And to and, and not that the burden should all be on the transit agency, because, again, the transit agency is operating in this broader societal context. I think on issues like enforcement, what we have seen, and we have a good report about this, too, called mm -hmm. Safety for All. We've got a report on just about anything you've asked about. But there's got to be a spectrum of interventions that range from law enforcement. There is, and this is, again, I think some advocates get this wrong, there actually is a role for law enforcement. Like when somebody's brandishing a knife at women because they're wearing a hijab, you got to be able to call 911 and have a strong intervention from law enforcement. But law enforcement is not the only answer to every problem. In fact, it's not the answer to most of the problems that actually occur on transit, which are more nuisances and annoyances rather than crime. And have those sorts of interventions that are unarmed, that are compassionate, that don't treat everything as a crime. They treat crime as a crime and are very forceful about treating crime as a crime, but they treat homelessness, they keep mental illness as what it actually is. And mm. so that I think is the most effective, whether you're talking about whether it's on the transit system or in the parks or, you know, like I say, outside mm. a grocery store, that our society as a whole, our society as a whole, not just the transportation sector, but our society as a whole has to develop this much wider range and 
properly funded sorts of responses to the type of social dysfunction that we have, of which crime is only a part. Okay, I'm going to work in a I'm going to work in a bike question here that's related to transit and, and related to a social social function, something that can improve social dysfunction, which is bicycling. I remember when the bike share system here in Portland was trying to get its first big federal grant to get launched, which Metro facilitated. Um, there was talk, there was quotes that I loved from some local leaders, which called bike share a public transit system, which I liked. Um, that hasn't, I haven't heard that much lately. We don't really talk about it like that. I feel like our system is sort of languished a bit. And as someone who's, you know, so familiar with New York City, which has such an amazing bike share system that is so massive, probably the biggest one in North America. Um, I just wonder, do you think there's more we could do to make bike share more into a public transit system, even governance speaking? Is there something we could shift in terms of how it's uh, operated that would make it a more sort of like integral part of our transit network beyond just a bunch of bikes, you know, around the city? I think it's a matter of thinking about how do we enable our citizens to live a car-free lifestyle and recognizing that human beings are not uh, defined by the mode they predominantly use. They, uh, most people use one mode for one purpose or they, you know, doing something else, they use, use a different mode. And how do these different offerings kind of come together to free them from, free the residents from, from, from car dependence and the onerous financial costs of owning and operating and insuring a, a, a car. So I think, I think you got to have some, whether it's at MPOs and that's, you know, you mentioned Metro Council coordinating the bike share here in, um, in, in Portland. That's a good example of, a, of an MPO that I think does think that way and, and thinks about how do, we, how do we get all these kind of services aligned. There's more, too, that can be done in terms of fare interchangeability and, mm -hmm. you know, you know common, common payment that can also make things more easy. New York hasn't gotten to that yet. Well, maybe when uh, when Metro takes over TriMet, we can also maybe just throw in Bike Town as part of the package and have that be run by Metro as well. <laughs> sure. Um, David Bragdon, anything else that you want to share with your your former town here, <laughs> your your Portland people? Well, I was I was like coming back. I've got a sentimental attachment to Portland. Probably always will. I didn't ask. Actually, I wanted to ask you what's what. Can you say anything else about what may come after Transit Center for you? Oh, I, you know, I'm kind of looking around. I don't know. I'd like to get my hands back on sort of project level type work, probably do some consulting. Great. Okay. Thanks, David. Yeah. That was former Metro Council President and outgoing Executive Director of Transit Center, David Bragdon. Be sure to check the show notes for things we mentioned in the episode. Thank you so much for listening. And to all of you who support Bike Portland, thank you very much. It's your financial contributions that make our work possible. And if you're not a subscriber yet, please do sign up as soon as you can at bikeportland.org support. I'm your host, Jonathan Moz. And until next time, I'll see you in the streets. <laughs>